Every major study on Christianity in America shows one thing. There are fewer Christians today than there were yesterday. Now, uh, year after year, uh, different research comes out, and um, it continually shows that very thing, that there are fewer Christians today than there were yesterday. And tomorrow, there will be fewer Christians in America than there are today. Every major study shows decline in Christianity in America. Now, we have to look at this, and we have to ask the question, why? And I believe our text this morning, is why I'm bringing this up, I believe our, our text this morning uh, is going to help us understand why that is. And so, know that... Um, as we begin to look at it, there's a, f- a few things. There's some general observations, some general truths that research kind of shows. And know that it's pretty complicated uh, results. There's not one reason why this is true. Uh, but I believe that we can, we can come in and we can find some kind of major ones. So one, Christians are dying. And so this is what's happened. Uh, if, if you look at the rise of Christianity in America, the, the, the times where... Uh, from the church growth movement, when we were at peak church attendance in America, peak baptisms, whatever else, um, the church is at its largest. A lot of those Christians from the peak are just aging, aging and, and dying. So that's a, that's a general truth. At the same time, we've not reached the next generations at the same rate. So there, there's, there's example A. But the second thing that we have to go is that actually... There are plenty of people who were once in church, once claimed Christianity, who now say that they're not a Christian. They have become the nuns. And so the largest category of, of growth within religious, religious uh, demographics in America is the nuns. Um, by, I think they're saying somewhere like 2050, uh, there will be more uh, people with no religious affiliation than any other religious affiliation so you've got the rise of the nuns and so what has made people who attended church belonged in church went to church walk away from the church now something that's pretty popular in our culture right now is something called the deconstruction movement and it's people deconstructing their their faith now uh, deconstruction isn't always a bad thing for a lot of folks they some so, some folks come and they look at their faith and they see uh, bad teaching, bad theology, hypocrisy. So it's not just orthodoxy, it's orthopraxy. It's how that was lived out and, and played out in their lives. Maybe it was in their homes. And they, they're taking all that and they're going, I'm, I'm leaving that. And let me figure out what I really believe. And I think there are some people who are, who are going to the Bible and realizing and coming to the conclusion that the Bible is true and that their faith is in Jesus, not in uh, a man-made set of, of actions that were lived out in their, in their church. So they, they come to a place and it's purifying and it's building up. But I believe more people than not are just walking away from the church uh, we, we, um, I mean, we have, we have to look and realize that there's different things going on. The mainline denominations, um, the Episcopalians, um, Lutherans, the Presbyterian, the Methodists, those are the, the fastest declining segment. 
And I think it's worthy noting that many of those have abandoned the gospel. Uh, liberalism and the social gospel took over uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And that is a huge part of their, their decline. It's that they abandoned belief. We, we must note that in, in all of these studies, one thing that's true is that people are leaving one church. And some are leaving altogether, but others are going to other churches. And so there's a whole lot of swapping sheep that goes on. If we want to look at growth segments in Christianity, there are, there are segments that are growing. Uh, there are new denominations uh, that have sprung up, new groups, new movements that have started up and they've seen growth. A lot of that growth actually though comes from people from other churches. And so if we want to look even in our community, there's a great, uh, there's a great picture of this in that the community churches uh, those who have, have really no affili affiliation have seemed to have grown, but often they've just grown because somebody's left another, another church and come to it. And so we have to begin to ask why. Why is this? Why in America are we seeing this? Every week when I get up to preach, I want to do a couple things. I want to exegete the scriptures. I want to look at the scriptures, and we're going to pull it apart. But I also seek to exegete the culture, to really di dig in and look at the culture and then apply God's word to it. And so I, I want to do that today. Um, here's the good news. That it seems like, hey, he's up there. This is like the bearer of bad news. Christianity's dying in America. Let me tell you, here's the good news. Is that it's not in the world. Christianity is actually growing. There are more people today who claim Christ in the world, who profess Christ, than any other time in history until tomorrow. And tomorrow there will be more Christians than there were uh, today, so Christianity globally is growing. Um, that's the good news. Uh, there's uh, last year we saw a 1.17 percent growth rate, uh, almost uh, 2.56 billion people identify as Christian, and by 2050 that number will top 3.33 billion. And so. Um, there's good news is that Christianity is spreading. There, there are more people in more places all over the planet who profess Jesus as Lord today than ever before. Um, if you look at where, where Christianity has spread to, it's spreading into places where 50 years ago the name of Christ was unknown. And so they're professing Christ. We're seeing movements happen in other places uh, around the world. And guess what the good news is in that? They're sending missionaries to America. And so um, the, the, the country that once had a strong Christian faith is as it's in decline. We've seen our missionaries take the gospel to other places. And um, I, I, just, I didn't tell this story in the first. I just thought of it. There's one time I was in Washington, D.C. I was on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and I was talking to a guard, and he shared the gospel with me. He didn't know I was a believer. Come to find out, he was from Africa, and a Southern Baptist missionary led his grandfather to Christ. Right? And so that's the beauty of Christianity. God is on the move. God is working. God still seeks and saves the lost. But we have some real problems in America. So today I'm going to speak to this passage to American Christianity. So as we dive in the Bible, here's the big truth that I want us to see from our text today. And it's this, that those who hear God's word, believe it, and do it, and will remain steadfast until the end. Let me read that for you again. Those who hear God's word, believe it, and do it, will remain steadfast until the end. Now, 
Um, we believe, uh, as, as people who have a baptistic faith, we believe in a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. And that doctrine teaches us, uh, we believe we can see this in God's word, we'll see it in this passage, that those who believe the gospel and are saved never lose their salvation and they persevere till the end. And so once you become a believer, you've probably heard it said this way before in a church, once saved, always saved. Now, here's the issue with once saved, always saved. I believe once saved, always saved is true. I want you to hear that. I, I, I believe in the do doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Those who uh, place their faith and trust in Christ will, will remain steadfast, will persevere until the end. But what we've done uh, with our preaching of something called easy believism, we've lowered the bar of, of saying, let's, let's uh, walk an I'll say a prayer, lowered it later on to, to just raise your hand, close your eyes, repeat after me. So walk an aisle, say a prayer, get baptized, and then your life can look totally Christless, totally godless. And we'll stand up at your funeral and say, man, I remember when this man was 14 years old, he made a profession of Christ, and I believe is in heaven, when their life has, has borne no fruit. And so we've taken that, this doctrine and we've perverted this doctrine to say something that it was never meant to say. And so I think we'll see in Scripture here today the support of this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. Those who hear God's word believe it and do it and will remain steadfast until the end. So, take your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 4, and we're, we're going to read through verse 10. And we're going, to, we're going to just exegete that one little passage, and then we're going to take the actual explanation of the parable, and we're going to take it apart verse by verse. And that's how we're going to handle it. So, and when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among, among thorns. And the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into a good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables. So that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Here's my first big idea as we look at this text. Is that those who truly hear the word of God gain understanding. Those who truly hear the word of God gain understanding. Sometimes uh, Jennifer and I will have some sort of dis dispute. Uh, we'll get into a, some sort of argument, a fight if you will. And she'll, she'll be talking. And as she's talking to me. I won't be listening to what she's saying. She's talking, and I immediately go into defense mode. And I start thinking of my defense. How am I going to defend myself against the accusation that she's making? And so what happens is, 
I, she, she pauses, and I interject my defense. And she looks at me and goes, you didn't hear me. She's right. I was too worried about defending myself to hear her. And the very thing that she was expressing, I was actually probably defending something else because in, 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 uh, just in my sinful nature and my wanting to be right or my wanting to be justified, I didn't listen. So often, this is how we come to the Bible. We don't come to the Bible to hear what it has to say. To really hear God, we come to the Bible wanting to defend ourselves and defend our actions against the Bible. And so, when I do that as a husband, I'm wrong. And it's not what I should do. That's not being a good husband. And today, as we come, we come to the Word of God, I, I don't want you to come like thinking, what is my defense going to be? How can, I, how, how can I defend what this projects onto me? But rather, let us be people who hear and seek to understand. That we would be people who understand. Now, the, the purpose of this parable and how Jesus taught parables and why he taught parables is so that those who understood, who those who were there with pure motives, who were seeking to follow him, would understand what the Bible is saying, but really coded enough that those who weren't there, who were there to manipulate his words, who were there for their own personal gain or good, wouldn't really grasp it. And so he says this statement, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Jesus doesn't say this often. I think it's only said about seven times in Scripture where he says, he, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so, we want to be, be verse 10. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables. Like, we want to know what God is teaching us. We want to seek understanding and gain understanding. So as we approach this text, we want to hear what God's word says that we may understand. And so now, he explains this parable. Starting in verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who've heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who when they hear the word receive it with joy... But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hear, who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So, so, we begin to take this apart. Put your eyes on verse 11, and here's the big idea that I want you to see. The Word of God is what we need to hear to be saved. Verse 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the Word of God. It is, in, in fact, God's Word the good news of Scripture, it's God's Word that we hear. It is the message of salvation for all. And so we need to hear it. We need to hear God's Word. Now, if we would take and we would just back up in our conversation a few minutes and we would look at all the people walking away from the faith, 
walking away from Christianity. Here's one thing, one red flag that sticks out for me is that there's a lot of people who never heard the word of God. Now, I don't think this, this parable is necessarily speaking to, to, to this. Jesus, his word that he was saying was the word, but preachers would come, people would come who would not preach the word. We see that. We see Paul give great warning about it. And I think that that's an issue for us in our culture and time and in the church in America. And we go back and we look at, at the church and the church growth movement of the, the, the 80s and the 90s. That there was a mishandling and there continues to be a mishandling of the word of God. That we don't fully preach the word. That we water it down. That we pick and choose what we want to say. Uh, we, we pick what people want to hear. I mean, if you want to grow a big church, here's what you do. You get re really positive messages that um, never approach sin, never uh, convict someone, and you encourage people that they can do it, that you can do it. If you set your mind to it, you can do it. And if your sermons are motivational speeches... That fuel the American drive to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That, that fuel the American drive to work hard and earn it and gain it. You can grow a following. You can grow people into the church. And so if you lower the bar, you can get people to come into it. The problem is that the, the seed that is being planted is really a weed. What's going to sprout up isn't, isn't a, a root that's going to grow into this healthy being that's going to bear fruit. No, it's a weed. And so part of our issue is that the seed hasn't been the word of God in the American church. Listen to what Paul told Timothy. He said, preach the word. The seed. Sow the seed. Preach the, the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So, no matter if people want to hear it or don't want to hear it, if people are hungry for it or they're not hungry for it, sow the seed anyway. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so, if we want to look at the church growth movement and what caused this bubble of, of Christians that are no longer walking with Christ, there wasn't a whole lot of reproving, rebuking, or biblical exhortation that took place. And so it was an, an inflatement of ego. It was puffing people up. It was itching their ears. And now when it, comes, when it happens and it's not useful for them, they in fact walk away. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And man... Obviously, this was true, as Paul said it to Timothy. But man, isn't this true for us? And don't we have access? Like, we can turn on the TV, we can pull up YouTube, and we can just find the teacher that itches our ears, and we can block everything else out, and we can create this information kind of silo that puts those teachers right to us. Let me tell you, one of, one, in, in discipleship in our church, one of, one of the things that is hardest for me is to get people listening to the right guys. 
Uh, man, this, I had a disciple text me this week, a guy who I invested many years of my life in. He, li- he, he lives in a different state, and he texted me and asked me a question, and I wanted to go, if you just shut down YouTube and read your Bible, you'd be a lot better off. Because it's clear that you're listening to somebody on, on YouTube. They'll accumulate for yourselves teachers that, that suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into mist. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. And so the first thing that we must note is that the word of God is what uh, people need to hear to be saved. Therefore, the seed that we sow ought to come from God's word. That ought to be convictional for us. Here's the next big idea, is that Satan's goal is for you to not believe in Jesus. Listen to the first seed. Verse 12, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. So do you see that? That Satan's goal isn't for you to believe in Satan. Satan's goal isn't for you to worship Satan. Satan's goal is for you not to believe in Jesus. The devil comes and he takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. The ones uh, uh, sown among the path. We need to sow seed out front. We've had our construction done. It's been a year ago. The weeds are starting to come up. We, we, need, to, we need a lot, a lot of work out there. And if we go and we prep the soil and we do all the things and we sow the seed, there's no doubt there's going to be seed that lands on that sidewalk. And that sidewalk is the seed that will never have any chance to grow. And for us, that what Jesus is painting is it's the person who comes in not hearing Satan who's who is in their ear. They're believing the lies of the world. They're believing the untruths of the world that Satan has put. Not so that they'll believe in Satan. That they won't believe in Jesus. That's the goal. Now, when I studied this week, and, and, and in, in just reading the word, and as reading this passage over and over, I kept, kept, kept kind of like flipping to James chapter 1. And, and here's, what I, here's what I just kind of came convinced of this week, is that, that James chapter 1 is greatly influenced by the parable of the sowers. And so I want you to turn to James chapter 1. And we're going, to be, we're going to be in several verses throughout. We're kind of going to skip around in it. But I think the things that James are teaching in James chapter 1 are things that he learned from hearing Jesus preach this sermon, especially at the end of it, because there's part of it that stings for him. And so, turn to James chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 13. It says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so this is Satan's goal for you not to believe in Jesus. And we know that Satan's out to kill, to steal, and destroy. That it will bring forth death. So, as we go through this parable, I want you to understand that, that for the Christian, for the person who hears the gospel, they're going to face temptations. Those temptations come from Satan. They do not come from God. But you also experience trials. 
And those trials can come from God. There are trials that can happen in your life that, that come from God, and God uses them for his glory and for your good. And there's also tests, and, and those tests, trials, kind of you can group them together. That they're God moving and working. But what you can't say is that God caused me to sin. God kept this from me. No, it's Satan that robbed you of that. It's Satan that did it. But you have to own it here. Because each person tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Satan puts things in front of us that our own corrupt hearts desire. And then when that desire gives birth, we sin. We act on it. We believe that what Satan says is true. And we act on it and we do it. And that, that begins this long, painful journey to death. A path of Satan to kill to steal, and destroy. It is a path of destruction. So here's my next big idea that we can see in Scripture, is that followers of Jesus remain steadfast when tested. Followers of Jesus remain steadfast when tested. Verse 13, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, in the time of testing, fall away. So those who, who hear and they receive it, they're like, hey, this is great. But they end up not believing it. They, they believe for a little while, but then it says they stop believing. That they, They're like, mm, no, this, this isn't exactly right. And they stop when the trial hits. They don't like what they're hearing. They fall away. Flip back over to James chapter 1. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so, followers of Jesus aren't like these that land, the seed that land upon the rock, because when they, uh, they initially they receive it with joy, they believe it for a little while, but when the test happens, they fall away. But for the believer, something else happens. When, when the trial comes, it tests their faith and it, and it produces steadfastness. It produces perseverance, proving that they know Christ. Now, when, when you go through a trial, who of you in this room goes through a trial and rejoices? Man, Lord, thank you for... Thank you for this trial. Thank you so much that I'm in this season of pain. Like, we don't typically do that, do we? But, man, I, I'll, I'll tell you. I can sometimes watch it happen. I watch somebody get a trial, get a bad diagnosis, have a death in the family, go through something hard, and watch their faith come out stronger on the other side. Watch their love for Jesus come out stronger on the other side. In the first service, Carl uh, Wilson was sitting right over here. And Carl and Kiana, this time last year, Carl had a, a cancer diagnosis. And, and man, you saw it. They, had, they hadn't been at our church long at all. Uh, but Carl and Kiana, it was, it was apparent that Carl, man, he wanted to pursue the Lord, love the Lord. And you watch him go through this cancer. Uh, this time they were like, this time last year they were still trying to figure out treatment. Uh, they started chemotherapy in July. 
later on in the fall, he completed chemotherapy. And, but you watched as the Lord healed him and the church wrapped their arms around him. What did you watch of Carl and Kiana? But they fell more and more in love with Jesus. And I look at other people in the room and the trials that you've been through. And I've seen you come out on the other side, tested, and in a place that you can count it pure joy. Because the Lord has moved and worked in the sorrow, in the hardship, in the trial. The Lord has used it to refine you, to grow your faith. And so, as James says, we can count it all joy. This testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And listen to this. When it has its full effect, that you will be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. This is God's sanctifying work in you as you profess Christ. And he, in your life, sanctifies you and makes you more and more like him. So followers of Jesus remain steadfast when tested, obviously. Those who really don't follow Jesus when tested fall away. Here's the next big idea. Is that Satan uses the cares and riches and pleasures of life to get you to believe in yourself. Verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. They're choked out. Choked out by the cares and the fruit, the, the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. Those three things choke out any fruit that they have, and their fruit does not mature. Man, this could be the American problem. Man, we see those other two, and I think those other two are problems, but man, I think this could be the real issue for the American church right here. That, that our cares, our riches, our pleasures of life. Look back over at James chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower fails and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In America, we as a, a population are the richest population in the world. We, uh, the poorest people in our country... Are, have more wealth than some of the richer people in other countries, in other contexts. We have a ton of cares and riches and pleasures. We have so many things that we care about, that we focus on, that we spend our time looking at, uh, focused on, that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It chokes it out. And you could just even look at sports in America and the way that we rally around sports and spend our time in idolizing sports. Go Nuggets. Right, um, we we look at those things, and it, and it, and those those cares. We care more about who wins a who wins a, a a ball game or a race or whatever else than we do about the things of Christ. There's cares. There's there's 
jobs that we idolize. There's, there's things in life that, man, our pursuits and our passions. Man, we, we look at money. We've got money, and we want more of it. That's what's true of Americans. More money will fix our problems, won't it? But let's look at the rich in our country. Let's look at people that are filthy, stinking rich. Are they joyful? Are they happy? Let's look at, look at professional athletes in the wreck that happens when they're given money. So often when a, when a professional athlete, they're given money, what happens to their life? It falls apart. But yet we're over here going, man, I hope my kid can be a professional athlete and make a ton of money. That might be a good way to ruin their life. Look at people who win the lottery. They're not happier. You know what? You know, you know the most medicated segment of people in our society are wealthy white women. Did you know that? Why? I can get into this a different sermon for a different day, but it's one, it's, it's money and lack of purpose. It's money and lack of purpose. And, and, and if you heard last week's sermon, you know that I think you have a purpose. All women have a purpose. God's purpose, God's mission. Don't get mad at me. You should listen to last week's sermon. Uh, man, God has, God has a great plan for your life, and God uses you, and you're important in the kingdom of God. Just read the first three verses of chapter 8. But the riches, the pleasures of life, the things that, that, that come in and they choke us out. And here's what Satan does with it. He gets you to believe in yourself. He gets you to believe in yourself, to think that you can save yourself, that you can work. He speaks to, in our American culture, the idea that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that if we put our mind to it, we can do it. If we work hard enough, we can obtain it. And it takes away our need to trust in him, our need to depend on him. In America, we don't have to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We've got our daily bread. We open up our pantries and we've got the next two weeks of our daily bread. And so these are the things that Satan uses to choke us out. We love our riches. And so this is how it's going to be in the last day. That the lowly brother will be able to boast in his exaltation. Because his exaltation comes from Christ. And the rich in his humiliation. Because though it was like a flower that grew up. The sun rose in its scorching heat, it withers the grass, and the flower falls, and its beauty perishes. The things that we treasure, our, our riches, our pleasures, our care, they will pre, uh, perish. So as will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. More money, more stuff is not the answer. It's detrimental to our faith. And there's the good soil. Verse 15, as for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast and honest and of good heart and bear fruit with patience. Next big idea is that those who hear the word of God and truly believe it will bear fruit. I want you to notice the end of that, with patience. This is important. This is one of the keys you got to know that once you place your faith and trust in Jesus, and the Lord saves you, 
He doesn't just totally glorify you in a day. He doesn't just in one day make you like Christ. It is a sanctifying work that he does. And it's incremental that God changes and works and moves in your heart. And it's often not in a line like this. It's in a line like this. All over the place as he's moving and working in your life. And so he does it. And so this is the truth. What God works in your heart, we say this all the time, works out. What God works in your heart works out. So as you hear the word of God and you truly believe it, you will begin to bear fruit. We'll chase this down. We'll chase this down in a minute. But this is, this is the reality. Those who are in the good, good soil, they hear the word. They hold it fast and honest and good heart. They will bear fruit. James chapter 1 verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That you will remain, you will bear fruit, your life will be one that shows the fruit. I've heard preachers say it this way, we're looking for root, shoot, and fruit. That's what you're looking for, root, shoot, and fruit. That there will be uh, uh, rooted into to God's word in faith and that he will grow you up out of that and that shoot will bear fruit and that's when we know that someone has truly believed the gospel. So, verse 16, the parables, th- this parable is over and now, Jesus, uh, now Luke is going to tell us two stories that Jesus used to show these, these truths. Verse 16, now, no, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar, puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. And so here's the big idea that I want to show you is that you can know who is a Christian by their fruit. He's painting a picture saying, okay, the Christian, you see this root, fruit, this root, shoot, and fruit. Uh, you can also liken it to someone who lights a lamp. When you light a lamp, you don't put it under a jar, you don't hide the lamp, but people look at the light and know that that is a lamp. And so the person who bears fruit, they're able to look at that and know that that is a Christian. That is someone who says they follow Christ and they do. You can know who is a Christian by their fruit. Look at verse 18. Take care then how you hear, for the one who has more will be given. So the one who has faith, who has trust in Christ, more faith in Christ, more trust in Christ will come. When the, when the temptations come, when the trials come, when the tests come, and, and the Lord moves and works and brings you through that as the one who believes, you'll grow and more faith will come out of it. You will grow in your faith. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. And man, there, there, there's the real issue is that we're, we're saying, man, Christianity in America, there's a lot of people who identify as Christians. Matter of fact, over 50% of people in America say that they follow Christ. But if you've ever read the Bible, you know that five out of ten people that you meet, that is not true. Right? Five out of ten people, uh, they, they have a, a small-c Christian worldview. They would understand 
uh, Judeo-Christianity from a, from a uh, kind of a practical place, but not from a place of faith or belief. And so we see in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus says, there's going to be people who say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do these things in your name? And he's going to look at them and say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Listen to this. You can't just claim Christianity and, and say, no, you're going to bear fruit. Listen to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And so, man, Jesus is very clear. You'll see them by their fruit. That, that Christian, just, just as you'll recognize the lamp, so you will recognize the, the Christian by their fruit. And then he said this, and this is why I think this was personal to James. This is why I think James chapter 1 is so influenced. When you read James chapter 1 and you see all the, all the things that lay over, I think this is what resounded with James because then Jesus said this then his mother and his brothers came to him but they could not reach him because of the crowd and he was told your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you but he answered them my brother my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it and so here's the last big idea is that true Christians hear the word of God Decide to follow Jesus and don't turn back. That is who is a true Christian. True Christians hear the word of God. They decide to follow Jesus and they don't turn back. It's believed by most scholars that neither James nor Jude, Jesus' two, two brothers that we see write books of the Bible, were not believers until after the resurrection. And so in this moment, I think this is striking a chord with him. Right? I think that's why we see what happens. I think that's why Luke, Luke gives it to us. The other synoptics give us this, this hard statement. No. In the kingdom of God, this isn't by blood and relation. You're not born a Christian. You become a Christian when you hear the gospel. You believe it. You decide to follow Jesus. And then you don't turn back. That is who a Christian is. They bear fruit. When the, when, the, when the temptations come, when the trials come, when the tests come, they remain steadfast. They don't turn back. There's an old hymn, an old famous hymn. It says, I have, I have decided to follow Jesus. And it's a, it's a Christian hymn that originated in India. I'm... It's interesting how it happened. There was a revival in Wales that, 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 as it kind of played out, spurred this group of American Baptist missionaries about 150 years ago uh, to go to India. Some other people from England went to India, and these missionaries were doing work. And, and to be honest, it wasn't received well. And it wasn't like as they were in India, uh, man, that's like tons of people were coming to faith. Matter of fact, it was, it was the opposite. It was pretty discouraging. And, and one man comes to faith. 
And he begins to be discipled, and his whole household comes to faith. The story goes, is that as he's come to faith and as he's being discipled, the chief in the village that he lived in hated it, didn't like it. Brought him in front of the village, everybody comes forward, and they bring the man and his family who are the only followers of Christ there. And he says to the man, recant your faith, turn from Jesus. And the man says, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And immediately, the chief says over to two of his archers, and they shoot his two children. And his children lay there dying beside him. And he says, recount your faith. And he says, although none go with me, I still will follow. And they kill his wife. And he looks at him, he says, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. And they martyr him and they kill him. And so here this man whose faith was steadfast under trial to the point of the death of his whole family. And the chief saw that. And the chief seeing that happen, the chief goes, whatever he had, I want. Go get the American missionaries I need to hear. As the missionaries share uh, the story of Jesus, they share the word, they share the seed, they sow the seed. The chief came to faith in the whole village also. Man, we're going to sing that song today. Here's how this is going. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band back up. We're going to do communion today. We're going to sing this song. I want us to sing this song. I want you to stay in your seat as we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And I want you to evaluate, are these words true? Am I the good soil? Or am I getting choked out by the, the is it the schemes of the devil? Is it the trials of, of, of life? Is it the pleasures and riches of life? What is it? Is there something that I need to repent of? Do I, are there things that I, I, need to, I need to weed those out? I need to pull weeds. I need to make sure that my faith is genuine and it's true, that my faith isn't in myself, but it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I want you to sit in your seat. Stand in your seat, pray, get down on your hands and knees, whatever it must be. And I want you to put your mind on Christ. And then we're going to sing another song called, oh, Come to the Altar. And for those who follow Christ, those whose faith and trust is in Christ, I want you to come up and partake of communion. Now, uh, this is what we call the Lord's Supper. This was something that he told us to do. These are the instructions of the Lord's Supper. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we're saying that this, this little piece of bread is the body of Christ, and we are, we are breaking it. He broke it on our behalf, and we're, we're uh, memorializing that. And this this juice that is in here, it is the blood that Christ shed for 
us. But he also says this. Who therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And so let each person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so in this time, as we, as we sing, as we sing, I've decided to follow Jesus, as we sing, oh, come to the altar, I want you to examine yourself and go, have I followed Christ Is there any sin in my life? Are there things that I need to repent of? The things that you're holding on to. And if there are, repent of them. That's the purpose of the Lord's Supper. It's to to come and repent. To say, hey, I'm repenting of this. I'm turning from this. I'm rooting this this out of my life. I'm weeding this out of my life so that I will have the the right roots, the roots in Christ, and that my body will grow up and that I will bear fruit. There's a warning for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so use this time as a reflection of of repentance. Today, if you've never trusted in Christ, you would say that, man, I've always been that first seed that's been on that hard hard path. I have no roots. Maybe today is the day that you believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved, that you would say, God, I am a sinner And I need you to save me. And cry out on this song. Cry out in prayer and say, Father, save me from my sin. God, I believe the good news of the gospel that while we were still sinners, that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day that I may believe and know you, that God made a way for me to know you. Confess that today. Cry out to the Lord Jesus So, Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your word. Lord, may it take root. And may we grow up in you. And may our lives bear fruit. Lord, what you work in our hearts, may it work out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. And at the end of this song, then we'll start communion.